Welcome to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we explore the art of improving existing software with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations work past the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, Swazette Teller joins us from San Francisco, California. Swazette is a technical writer, author, speaker, and is currently a senior engineer at TIAP. Swazette Teller, we're so glad to have you join us on Maintainable. Welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. So as you reflect on your experience in our industry, what do you believe are a few common characteristics of, dare I say, well-maintained software? (laughs) Well-maintained software, that's a really good one. The thing that a lot of software engineers really like to forget is that well-maintained software is not just something that follows some textbook idea of perfection. First and foremost, it does have to solve an actual business problem that real people have. I think it was Newton who said about uh, students, it would be so much easier to develop software if there were no users and if there were no businesses who need to pay for it, because then you could just make it perfect and amazing and wow, that would be great. The older I get, the more my idea of maintainable software has shifted towards anything that's easy to change and update later because it's probably not going to live for that long. It might if you're very lucky, but it's probably not going to. Um, so just make it as easy as possible to change and kind of keep it crappy and don't try to be super clever. A couple of things you just mentioned there. and that early era of a, say, a, a software a company that's, using, that's building some software. Maybe that's part of, core part of their business, or maybe it's just a tool that they need to use in their business. And so kind of always kind of in some ways maybe label those like, well, those are MVPs or prototypes of things early on. And then with the potential plan to redo it at some point, okay, we'll come back once we know more and, and revisit this or do a rewrite. But I also know that I make a living off the fact that a lot of companies never have an opportunity to do that. And they just keep iterating. What do you think goes wrong in those scenarios where you those become compounded issues for the team that you end up hiring three, five years down the road? It's, it's actually a super hard problem because on one hand you have, I know a lot of companies who maybe not quite failed, but never actually got off the ground because they were too focused on having software that's great and making everything amazing. So you never get to actually shipping it. And then on the other hand, you have a lot of companies who ship it and do really, really well, but then crush or crash under their own weight where they're just not able to iterate anymore and they're not able to continue building on that software. So I think in a large part, it comes down to the appetite of the team to continuously always be in a semi-rewrite state of everything. Because Yes, you do have to ship the MVP, and that's almost like a joke in software engineering. We're going to build a prototype. It's just a prototype. Oh, wait, it works. It's in production now. Oops. So I think you continuously have to kind of go through this process of rewriting and updating your software. So you're kind of always in a rewrite state. That's what I've seen works best, at least on the web. I would not suggest that if you're building control systems for cars. Maybe not. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point there. Another thing you know mentioned in your experience, you've known a lot of companies that would maybe be waiting because they don't feel like the tech, the product or software is not quite ready yet behind under the hood. Do you think there's a that's more of an issue for companies and startups that might be led by people that are more on the software side of things versus businesses that have that business thing and there's pressure like we need to get this to market and then so the software 
people are more of a part of the company, but not necessarily the ones leading the company. Right. So what you're saying is almost if the business doesn't listen to their engineers, it's, they're going to do better. I think that can be the case. It probably depends more on, because you do need technical leadership. I think it's very important, especially in modern product companies, to have that technical leadership, somebody who actually understands how products are built. But that technical leadership needs to have the battle scars and the experience to know when it's worth going for perfection and when it isn't. And it's, all, it's also true from the business side. A lot of business people would love to ship, or at least product people would love to ship stuff that's way too perfect and wait forever. But you kind of have to get over that and just get it out there to, so that you can get feedback. Like a, a very interesting example from the space industry, even the Mars rovers usually launch towards Mars without software for landing because, hey, it's going to take seven months to get there. That means we have seven more months to write the software. We don't need it yet. I had not heard that before. That's that's fascinating. I'm gonna have to look that up and maybe share some links to that in the uh, the show notes for everybody. So, what is your current take on the metaphor technical debt? Do you use it at all in your day to day work? Yeah, I think right now I'm at a company where we're probably the best I've ever seen at actually using technical debt as a tool. I kind of like teasing people on the internet about it because we've had really good success with technical debt. I'm at a company that got to a series A, a pretty big series A with a jQuery based product in, I think they, they raised the series A before I joined, which was in 2020. And they started the product in jQuery in like 2018, 2019, thereabouts, and got it to series A with jQuery and horrible code. And then basically my job was, okay, we have this horrible code and we got this far we can tell that it's not going to get us to the next stage because it's just not going to scale when we get more engineers. The way you usually write jQuery becomes very spaghetti and it's very hard to pull on those strands of spaghetti without messing everything up. So my role was basically, how can we take this and move it towards React? And in about a year, we still have some jQuery, but in about a year of that process, we went from a fully jQuery code base to a 90% React code base, and we raised a Series B that was four times bigger than the Series A. That's the kind of trajectory I'm talking about. That's that's what I mean by using tech that well. So now you've had an opportunity to come back and pay some of that down and stuff like that. And and let's just assume, though, you're probably accumulating new types of technical debt. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> what, are, what are some effective ways that you've seen teams maybe even where you're at now, like when it comes to organizing those types of maintenance and or refactoring type tasks? There's two, two ways that never work when it comes to dealing with technical debt. You're never going to have time to just stop the business and go work on technical debt and nothing else, unless you're in a very big company where they have special teams just for technical debt. Usually they're called platform teams or something like that, where their entire job is to figure out how to build frameworks and tools for everyone else to use and then go and update everyone's everyone's code to use those tools. That's a different scenario. In, in startups, what usually happens is that if you're in a startup and you have time to just focus on technical debt, that's usually a bad sign because it means the business has stopped innovating and you, 
as an engineer in this market, I would recommend switching to a team where they have more ideas than engineers rather than, oh, we have no, we have so many engineers, we're just going to have them work on technical debt. It's usually a bad sign for an earlier stage company. And so it, it kind of ends up being an ongoing process where you're always looking for ways to improve technical debt while you're working on a feature in a related space. So either, like I had the opportunity to, where they said, everything new is in React, go figure out how we can get started with React. And then we're going to slowly, as we update different parts of the code base, also move them to React. And that was just a mandate from above. And so we were able to iterate towards that. Now that we've done that, it comes more to like, what I call almost a gardening approach where your code base is always growing very organically as different people touch it, as they add features, fix bugs. So it's nice to sometimes when you can spare an afternoon or just find some time in the sprint to go and do that gardening to consolidate things when you see patterns. Oh, we've been repeating this a lot. Maybe I can just turn it into a component so we can stop repeating it. Or when you notice that people keep asking you the same question, one of my favorite tricks is, okay, so... Three people have asked me the same question about our code base already. How can I fix the code base so they never have to ask that again, either by adding comments or by just making it more findable, more explorable, or things like that? That's interesting. I like that, you know, I know that there's ways to look at like your code base and find areas where there's like a high frequency of say, churn or changes happening in a specific part of the application. But yeah, you don't. You know, it would be interesting to get, like, if there was a way to quantify metrics outside of knowing, oh, these people are asking about this specific area of the software, but to know, like, which areas of the software do, do, do developers tend to need to go look through the most and open up a bunch of tabs for different files to make sense of how something's working, getting some analytics there. I mean, like, that would be a really interesting uh, VS Code plugin if you could get a heat map of your code base of what's the most opened files. What is going on in the software code base? It's um, interesting. You know, I, I, you kind of mentioned this earlier that you know you like to kind of razz people a little bit on on social media and stuff like that about things like technical debt. Is there any strong opinions that you've held in regards to software development that you've since changed your mind about? I find that the younger I was in my well, maybe not the younger, but there was a time in my coding career where I was very obsessed with the dry principle, and you know. You never want to repeat yourself. Oh my God, this is so bad. Look at these people. They have repeat, repeated code. And now I'm like, well, it's so much easier to fix code that's repeated than code that's abstracted in the wrong way. The most common trap that I found there is when you have code that looks the same, but is actually semantically doing different things. And then you're like, oh, well, this is the same. So we're going to make a nice abstraction. You build that abstraction, and then six months later, it's like, why does this abstraction have four Boolean values to switch between different behaviors? <laughs> it's like, it's just extra work now. Right. Is there Are there any industry trends that you find yourself feeling really skeptical about? Are we allowed to talk about NFTs here? Or is that a different podcast? <laughs> No, you're you're welcome to. This will be the first time that that it's come up on the podcast so far. Um, I don't understand it, but um, I don't know if it makes me skeptical of it or just feeling very ignorant about a lot of the movement in that. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of both. I've been I've been watching the crypto space pretty much since it started, and it feels very much like one of those 
really cool technical ideas that are still looking for a problem to solve. Because, you know, distributed ledgers and all that, great. But we already have solved that with databases. And they're really good at it. And they're much faster. And, you know, it doesn't take... I don't know how long it takes these days, but I know Bitcoin at some point was up to almost half an hour or an hour to add a new piece of information to the blockchain, which is kind of bad. Ethereum, I know, is faster at that and has improved on some things. So the NFT craze looks like a potential use case for blockchains, but I'm not fully convinced yet that it's actually going to work because... Like, how long are people going to be interested in buying JPEGs when you can just take a screenshot and put it on Imgur and now everyone has that JPEG? It's, it is interesting how that, 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 whole, that whole space there, and I, I get, I'm feeling very, very ignorant on it, to be honest. Um, I have not spent that much time. I've, I've read more hot takes about it than I've read about it. So Yeah, totally. I've just kind of kept myself out of the conversation. I don't own any FT, NFTs yet. Yeah, me neither. Maybe I will as a novelty thing, but I don't. I don't know what I would go yeah. by. I mean, I'm really hoping they figure something out. A lot of people are very excited. So there's something is going on there. I just don't see it yet. And from a technology perspective, it just seems kind of odd. But Git is a really good use of the blockchain. It's probably the most useful one so far. So do you find yourself more often on the side of team rewrite or team refactor? Well, that's kind of a very interesting philosophical question. If you refactor your code base over time to the point where nothing of the original code base remains, were you refactoring or were you rewriting? Because I think full rewrites where people try to go in and say, okay, we're going to stop doing everything else and we're just going to rewrite this code base, that's going to that's gonna kill your company in most cases. Then you have the other approach to rewrites where, okay, we're going to keep working on this because we have to, but we're going to start a new team that's going to build an amazing new piece of technology and they're going to and we're going to keep iterating on the existing one and they're and they're going to keep catch up and make it better and when they do we're going to switch over they're never going to catch up because you you just said okay they're going to do the 2 years of work we've already done and in those 2 years they're also going to catch up on 2 years of new work that we're doing the math just doesn't really work. So I guess I'm team refactor, but if you go into it with the idea of this refactor is eventually going to fully replace what we have, I would call that a rewrite. It kind of makes me think about how like our skin replaces itself. Like are we are we always the same yeah, body, I suppose in some ways. Yeah, or the ship of Theseus when if you replace every piece of wood in a ship is still the same ship. We'll be back with our interview with Suizette in just a moment. Hi, it's me, Robbie. I want to take a quick moment to say thank you for making time to listen to the Maintainable Software Podcast. If you're finding these discussions valuable, please consider sharing a link amongst your peers and or writing a review on Apple Podcasts to help spread the word. Also, do you know someone in the industry that should be interviewing on Maintainable? Shoot me an email to Robbie with a Y at maintainable.fm. And now, let's get back to our interview with Suzette Teller. So I want to take a moment to plug your most recent book, Serverless Handbook for Front-End Engineers. I don't know why that 
Phrasing is sounding so complicated for me this morning. I'm drinking my, my cup of coffee, I promise. So while the title specifies front-end front end engineers, for those listening, who, whom do you believe this book is best su- suited for? What types of developers? I, I geared it towards front-end engineers because uh, people said that front-end beginners sound too... So I wanted to be encouraging. But it's really designed for people who want to get into serverless and have done other types of backends in the past. But mostly it's meant for, it's basically meant for people who want to learn about this new cool serverless stuff and also grasp the broader concepts of how backends work, how different uh, databases work, how distributed systems in general work. So it was kind of a, it's kind of the guide that I wish I had when I started going into serverless. And I added a bunch of experience I've built over the years with just traditional backends because I figured a lot of people these days, you know, didn't have the luxury that I've had of growing up in tech with the transition to NoSQL and with more distributed, going from monoliths to distributed systems and from having a server in your bedroom as that's just normal to now you run a Git command and it magically deploys to the internet and becomes a, U- a public URL. So I kind of put a lot of explanations of not so much the history behind that, but all of the fun- foundational knowledge that I feel like is useful that demystifies a lot of this technology. I'm remembering having flashbacks to the, my memories of another computer in my in my bedroom that was connected to the internet all the time, running a bunch of web apps and stuff like that. And I'm curious with, since you've been around through those transitional periods and I haven't done much serverless stuff myself or my team hasn't because we typically specialize in like Ruby on Rails backend type things. The thing I've been really curious about um, when it comes to things like serverless is how do you, what are some good pre- best practices for those that might have not have spent much time and they can go, I'll include a link for your book and stuff like that so they can go learn more about it. But explain to me how you're able to effectively run your environment and some sort of development space for a developer and be able to interact with these different services that might be just, you know, living on AWS or Google Cloud or some other platform. Yeah, so I think the biggest mental shift that you have to make from a from a Rails or an Express framework, or I think Sinatra used to be one of those as well, the biggest mind shift is that you no longer have to deal with maintaining your entire um not ecosystem, but your entire framework. You know, you don't have to care about routing. You don't have to worry about that entire ecosystem is a lot less necessary. And it's more about letting the serverless machinery deal with all of the routing and stuff. And you're just writing essentially controllers or fat models, depending on how you like to think about it. You're basically writing a, I use JavaScript in the book, but you're writing a single function that accepts an HTTP request does whatever it needs to do with that request, doesn't care so much about routing it to other to other functions or anything, just takes that request, handles it, and returns a response, usually in JSON. And then the API gateways and serverless machinery figures out everything else. And when it comes to dev and staging and so on environments, what I found works best is to just deploy it. Because... I use the serverless framework in the book because it's open source, but you ha- you can do the same things with Vercel, Netlify, uh, Gatsby Cloud these days as well, where they kind of handle all of that for you. And replicating the full environment locally is kind of fraught with dragons. 
I asked David Wells, who was one of the original developers of the serverless framework, and he literally said, yeah, dude, just, just give up on trying to replicate all of AWS on your local machine because it kind of works, but it's never going to exactly work. Service framework does come with some, some ability to run your functions locally. So you can say, you can just kind of run it in your CLI, give it a mock HTTP request and see what it returns. But one of the biggest problems I've had with that is that it forgets to check your permissions. So when you deploy it to AWS, suddenly your IAM roles all come into play and you're like, wait, why is this, why is this not working anymore? And it's, oh, because it doesn't have permission to read that one specific parameter somewhere on AWS. So it's easier to just deploy and you can basically change a, a single line of code in your configuration to deploy to different environments. And what's nice about serverless is because it is it really pushes this infrastructure as code idea. So instead of going into your uh, into your UI and fiddling around and having a series of steps to set everything up, you just you push to Git or you you run a deploy command and it replicates your entire environment. Everything, all of your functions, all of your configurations, even your databases, everything gets duplicated into a new, what they call a stage. So you have full copies either for every developer on your team, for every dev stage, staging stage, uh, and so on. Yeah, and thanks for kind of helping explain that a bit. It's always, it seems like such a big paradigm shift, but I can see there being a lot of advantages to not needing to muck around with all of these libraries and things like that in your local environment all the time just to try to make things work locally. And then you have that issue like, well, it works locally, but it doesn't work on the staging environment for some reason because um, it's, it's not the same, right? So that's interesting. So, you know, I, I know that you've writ written a few books and for those listening who might be curious about taking that path themselves one day, but they might be thinking to themselves, who am I to write a write about this type of topic? Have you ever had those moments and you're like, who the heck am I to talk about these things? And how did you get over that? Oh yeah, I have a lot of those moments. Serverless writing, I've usually written mostly about front-end and for front-end developers. So ser the serverless handbook itself was quite a departure for me. But I think the main reason I, I ended up writing it is because everybody else who talks about serverless is talking about it from the perspective of backend engineers and for backend engineers. So as somebody who is full stack, but is more focused on the front end, it felt very unapproachable because they were all assuming that I already know so much stuff that I just have never dealt with or wanted to deal with. I would say that everyone should try writing a book. It's super rewarding. I wouldn't expect to make millions off of that, but it is very rewarding and it does give, it's a nice thing to have to support your career as like a career capital building or asset building kind of thing. But most importantly, it's after you've just learned something and just grokked it, or maybe a little bit into your journey is the best time to write tutorials, is the best time to write books, because it's still fresh. You still you still remember what it was like not knowing that. There's a famous example of this in the Haskell community where they have this concept of monads and the number of monad tutorials on the internet is growing about, I think, exponentially. Uh, there's there's a graph on their wiki and everything. And the reason it's growing exponentially is because it's a super hard topic to understand. 
And then once you understand it, you're no longer able to explain it, but everybody tries. So we have a explosion of Monad tutorials on the internet that nobody understands because if you need a Monad tutorial, you don't understand it yet. And once you can write a tutorial, you can no longer explain it. But that's a rare example. Most commonly with normal programming topics that aren't Haskell, you can, the first time you understand it or the second time you really grasp something is the best time to explain it because you're not going to say stupid stuff like, well, that's obvious. Like, why are you asking me that stupid question? Because questions aren't usually stupid. You're just, can no longer relate to the beginners. It's kind of a rough time when it happens. <laughs> I, uh, I can relate to that. And I think there's an interesting fit period where I used to do a lot more blogging. I tried to write a book once upon a time as well, did not finish said book, but you know, I think and I have a lot of respect, you know, for people that are actually able to get that over the over the finishing line. When I, when I talk to a lot of people about writing, you know, especially we hire junior people from you know at our company, and like they're curious about blogging, but then they're always there's there's always this concern of like, well, there's so much already been written. Why would I be? What can I possibly contribute? But more potentially noise or insert whatever excuse we might give ourselves to like not do something because someone else has already done it, right? Why would I not just go just create a blog post that just links over to like 10 other blog posts to talk about the same type of thing. But I think there's that for me, it was always a, I found it easiest to write, like, as you were saying, when I was learning something, or if there's something I wanted to learn about, I'm like, Ooh, I'm going to write about that and then write as much about it as I could, but then go learn more things and then be able to kind of reiterate that if, if for anything else that there's an archive for myself to go back and read if I need to go back and re-familiar, you know, reacclimate myself with the topic because I'm, I might forget or it might not be memorable. And I remember Googling for things back in, the, you know, a couple of years after I'd written stuff and then my blog post would show up and I'm like, oh yeah, I did this before. You know, like I forgot how that worked. Yeah. Yeah. Those are the best times when that happens. <laughs> Happy to help my future self, I suppose, in some ways is another way to look at that. Yeah. And it's, it's also a good learning trick to um, like having to explain something to others really helps you learn it and internalize it. Um, I don't know what it is about it, but like taking a topic you kind of understand and explaining it really makes it crystal clear in your mind. I know that there's people that pitch conference talks around things that they want to learn about. And then if they get accepted to speak at said conference, then they have that as like a nice, uh, there's a time box now, I suppose, of like, well, I guess I better learn how that thing works because I'm supposed to be talking about it on a stage or uh, on some online webinar in, in two months. So that's another thing people can do as well. You were talking about how your team would, you know, as you see things, see patterns, you would go through and just take care of things like that. Do you also do anything that's like for anything that's going to take more than like an afternoon, more than a few hours or making that cleanup like right, right there and then way that your team is able to effectively organize those bigger pieces of work that might need to be come back? And then how do you if so, how do you then decide what is going to get addressed when and or when you bring in new people and they want to, they ask questions about like, why are things like this? And you're like, well, it's on the list. I'm making an assumption that you have a list of some sort somewhere. So I'll end my question there and let you kind of share. You know, there's always an engineering board where you throw everything that you can do right now. And we try to be super liberal with that to the point where a perfectly valid response to a uh, to a pull request comment is to say, okay, cool. That sounds great. I don't have time for it right now. I made an EN ticket, engineering board ticket. We're going to get to it later. 
most of the time you never get to any of those tickets. And it turns out that that's fine because if you never get to them, then they weren't that important and they weren't... Once you have a team of engineers who really understands moving fast and they have the shipping mentality of we need to get this out, we need to finish it and get it out rather than polish it until it's perfect, suddenly you can have this really good argument of, well, does it hurt? Is this bad enough for you to actually fix? Because, you know, there's a lot of engineers who will cry wolf and be like, oh my God, this is terrible. We got to fix this. This is, we really not need to fix it. And you're like, okay, then fix it if it's bad enough. And suddenly their tone changes and like, oh, well, yeah, no, you know, I have this other work to do. It's, I can live with it. It's fine. And like, okay, well, if nobody thinks it's bad enough to actually go and do the work, then it's not bad enough. And that's a really good way of dealing with those things, I think. But we do try to be, especially as the team grows, there's more and more time and more and more opportunities, especially for the more senior folk to take on more of a lead, more of a technical leadership role and be more like, you know, yeah, we're we're doing this story that's that's got business priorities and we've sliced it up into a bunch of subtasks and we all agree on what needs to be done. But I've built 10 checkout forms already or I've built a bazillion React forms already. This isn't that interesting for me. Why don't you who have only built one or two in your in your career, you take that on and I'll help you. But while you're doing that, I now have time to go and deal with the engineering board and kind of take on small tasks from there. And the nice thing about the engineering board is that it's fine for those tasks to be in progress for months or at least for weeks. Just kind of chip away at it as you can when you have time and you kind of go gardening, as I said earlier. Whereas for tasks that are actually on the sprint board and have business priorities assigned to them, if it's in progress for more than a day, the whole team goes like, well, something's wrong here. Do you need help? How can we help you? And everyone jumps on and helps you move that task along because you know, those, have, those have a business priority. And there are also times where we just know that we built something that is not going to scale with the plans that we have. And then we get a more of a business priority, technical debt kind of thing where it's like, uh, we're doing this right now where we we built a really big backend system that does some critical part in in our in our application and it's just not going to scale with the amount of growth we're planning for next year it's already breaking apart and is held together with like chewing gum and duct tape so that's not going to work so we decided as a business priority we need to refactor slash rebuild this otherwise it's just not going to be possible to achieve the goals that we have. So those are kind of the two different types of ways of dealing with technical debt. Not sure if that actually answers your question. No, it, it, it does. And it, one of the things you were talking about there, was a good, I want to call out is that idea around, you meant, you use like that, oh, I've already done 10 checkouts before, so like an example like that. You, I, I, I imagine that people listening are part of teams, for those that are on a team, there might they might be the go-to person for certain types of things. Or there might be other people on the team are perceived to be the expert or they know the most about how something works. So they tend to end up being the one to take on that work or when you have to deal with a certain area of the code base or your platform or infrastructure. I've always thought this was an interesting challenge of being like, I think it's great when those people can identify, like, you know, I've probably been working this area too much and maybe someone else should take 
you know, get an opportunity to work over here so that it's not reliant on me. But I also have this weird suspicion that a lot of people are a little bit embarrassed about how complicated it is in that area and they've not had a chance to maybe tidy things up enough, document it well enough, make it easier for someone else to come on. And so there's almost this like weird, like uh, it's not that they're gonna make themselves look bad, but just be like, they're, as I said, kind of maybe a little embarrassed about it. Have you, have you ever felt that or experienced that? Like, eh, I'll take care of that because I don't wanna burden you with this kind of messy thing over here that's working, but I just haven't got to take care of it the way that I want. And I also don't really wanna have to answer like 10 questions about why are things the way they are when I know the answer is like, ah, it's kind of messy, I don't wanna, you know what I mean? Yeah, I think there's uh, there's definitely been a lot of that in my career. There's, uh, I think it comes down to a couple of things. A lot of us engineers have really big egos and we kind of start hogging the Legos. Like, well, that's my part of the code base. I don't want other people touching that. It's perfect and amazing and I've built it just the way I like it. So I'm going to stay there. I'm going to hog that Lego. Some people can may think of it as a um, basically job security and thinking, well, you know, if I'm the expert in this critical piece of infrastructure, then I'm safe and I will always have that piece of infrastructure. I think that's actually kind of career suicide because you want to, your job as an engineer, or at least that's how I think of my job, is to make yourself unnecessary. Figure something out, how it's done the first time, make it better, get it to a good point, but then try to give it away, try to encourage others to do it so that you can go on to do other bigger, more interesting things. Because if you're stuck in one piece of the code base or owning one system, you're never going to be able to get to a more interesting part of the system or just, you know, to a completely different, more interesting job. So I think that's one aspect of it. The other aspect I do think is that embarrassment of like, ah, oh, you know, I know this is terrible. I know it sucks, but you haven't fixed it in this long. So does it actually suck that much? Or maybe you need some fresh wind and somebody new is going to come in and be like, oh, this sucks. What about if we do it this way? And, and you're like, wow, that's amazing. Go go forth and do it. I think one of the most powerful, especially one of, my, one of the most powerful phrases you can use as a, especially as a more senior engineer is just make it so. Um, somebody with cool ideas comes in and if it's not extremely wrong, if it feels wrong to you because it's different than how you would do it, but if it's not like, obviously, this is going to blow up because X, Y, and Z. If it's just, ah, that's not how I would do it. Just say, yes, go, do it. Make it better. I don't want to think about that anymore. I want to go do something else. I think that helps speak to the point that like there was maybe someone verbalized that to you um, in the past, said something like, make it so, or they kind of just implied because they hired you and you did it the way you did it, unless someone was very uh, detailed, like, micromanaging the way you approach the thing that you built in the first place. Uh, so it has become this interesting thing that I feel like as more, as you're in become more experienced and you become critical about other people might approach things that's maybe different than what you are currently, like the set of values that you have about coding or structuring things or architecture. I know it's an interesting thing. I know that you have a lot of opinions around it and you have uh, like mailing lists and things like that related to senior engineers as well. So so what are, from your perspective, what are some traits you'd expect to find in a senior level engineer and how might they learn more about that from, from, from you? Yeah, so I have this mailing list on seniormindset.com that talks about the mindset of a true senior engineer. 
because especially these days, it's very easy to get the title of a senior engineer where you just stick around for three or four years and suddenly you're a senior engineer. But there's a big difference between someone who has the title of senior engineer and someone who actually has the battle scars and the experience of a senior engineer. And this, there's this sort of wisdom that comes. A lot of that wisdom boils down to knowing when to make that, those trade-offs between this is a mess, but it's self-contained and we can always fix it later versus we cannot make a mess here because this is the checkout system for our entire company. Those sorts of things where I think beginners often lack that wisdom. And it's normal that they do. It's something that you can get over time and you can also get through exposure to just thinking about it, talking about it. That's what I try to do with my mailing list is kind of keep challenging people, keep uh, pushing their minds just to think in a new way and change their mindset. A lot of it is also, I think, this bigger focus on business outcomes and business results rather than some textbook perfection of the actual code base. I don't know if that's just because I'm in Silicon Valley and I'm very I'm very much a product-focused engineer versus academia, but I feel like the, more, the longer I spend in the industry, the more I realize that code is just a tool and pretty much all code is a liability. It all has cost and the less code you write, the less code you use to solve problems, the better. Obviously, don't replace code with humans where humans would be doing super repetitive tasks and you would have to hire a thousand of them to do it. That's not going to scale either. So it kind of almost becomes more of a the, more like a systems perspective where you can think of, okay, we should write code for this because it's going to have these scaling characteristics. We don't need code for that because it's fine or we're going to need to solve this problem in a different way once we hit these sorts of parameters because, you know, the way I would describe it is uh, when it comes to tech is you're not Google and just blindly following Google's or Facebook's or Amazon's best practices, which I think a lot of engineers do, is basically shooting yourself in the foot because you don't have those kinds of problems. You don't have that kind of scale and you're almost certainly going to do a better job if you do it in a, a dumb, simple way because it's going to work fine. You know, if, okay, sure, you have a bug that happens once in a million, but if you have, if it takes you five years to get a million users to your website, who cares? <laughs> that's that's a good point. And the, I always think about how a lot of the people that speak at conferences or because I think it's just in that nature or, or do a lot of writing and get a lot of publicity, it's because for those that are organizing events, being able to mention like there's people from those larger companies going to be speaking gives it like a little bit more weight in some ways that like, oh, look how more. So their opinions seemingly are more valuable because they're the ones up on stage or being invited to talk about these things because you don't often see a list of five speakers on a webinar or a panel talk of most companies you've never heard of before. They're like, well, who are these people? You know, it's like, because if, if you might not know the person. So anyways, that's just kind of reiterating what you're saying. You, you got to be cautious about you know, you know, it's kind of like keeping up with the neighbors, but when the neighbors are actually like, you know, if you're, they have mega campuses and like 50 to a hundred thousand employees, you know, they, they have a different set of resources available for that type of thing than you do with your team of like three to five engineers, maybe. And they have different needs as well. Like I think Google has somebody who spent six months or a year optimizing the sort performance of JavaScript for Chrome. Um, 
I don't think most companies need that level of expertise. Hi there. Do you know someone who might be looking for assistance with their Ruby on Rails application? Planet Argon would love to meet them. We're offering a $1,000 referral bonus. Send someone our way, and if they sign up for services with Planet Argon, we'll give them a $1,000 discount. And in return, you'll get a check for $1,000 in the mail, just for knowing the right person. Hop on over to planetargon.com referrals for more information and to refer someone our way. That's planetargon.com referrals. Thanks. All right, so a couple of quick last questions for you. Do you have a non-technical, non-software-related book that you find yourself recommending to people in our industry quite a bit? It sounds super sleazy, but How to Win Friends and Influence People is probably the best book you can read for your career. You're not the first person to, to recommend it. So, so it, it, it's, I think it's been one of the most cited ones on the, on the podcast. Yeah, it's also the most popular self-help book in history. I would also really recommend Thinking in Bets by, I think it's Annie Duke. It really changed how I approach engineering and how I approach engineering decisions. Just thinking about them as bets, where how much risk can we take with this decision? How much does it matter? And then just go for it and stop thinking about it. Get over that deci- the decision fatigue that can kind of plague us. Be like, this is a decision forever when it's like, no, this is a decision that might that we can change in a couple of weeks or months or next year. So nothing's, nothing's forever. So where can listeners best follow your thoughts on software development online? I'm on Twitter at Swizzets. You can read my blog on swizzets.com. Uh, that's where I have a newsletter as well. And seniormindset.com is for more senior mindset focused content. And uh, yeah, that's usually where I post everything. That's great. I'll definitely include links for everybody in the show notes for that. Well, it's been such a delight having you join us on Maintainable Swizzette. Thank you so much for talking shop. Yeah, thanks for having me. Maintainable.